please grab your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 84. We're going to be looking at this familiar and much-loved psalm this morning. We don't have a lot of time, so let's pray that God would sharpen our minds and help us to get the things out of His Word that are really going to bless us and help us to grow in Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word, that sure Word that has so often comforted us who have walked along through the trials of our lives. We thank you for the word that has guided us when we found ourselves in confusion, that has quieted our hearts when we felt under attack of the evil one. We thank you that your word reveals your goodness and your glory and your power. Show us these things this day as we look into it, and by your spirit would you apply them to the hearts of each one according to our need, that we might give you praise for the answers to prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In case you hadn't noticed, the world is in bad shape. Okay, got that done. But I stole that phrase from another preacher. But the reason I stole it was that when I heard it, it actually impacted me so much that it changed the way that I thought about the world around me. How do you think about the world around you? You know, I'm sure that all of us could find some aspect about the world um, about which we would be able to say it's in bad shape, whether it's climate change or politics or economics. There's something that's out of whack for sure. But the point that the preacher was making really when he said that was that people are in bad shape. Here's my point. Um, it's one thing, for instance, to drive down the freeway and see homeless encampments along or and say, this is bad. Somebody needs to do something about this homelessness. It's quite another thing to think about the individual human beings, beings made in the image of God, who live in these conditions or many other worse conditions somewhere throughout the world. Which is your way of seeing the world around you? Now, Jesus' way of seeing the world uh, was clear from the way he conducted himself while on earth. He healed the individual. He drove demons from the individuals. He looked into their eyes. He was moved with compassion. He spoke to them. He listened to them. 
There was a preciousness to each one that he came into contact with. And he left this legacy to his church when he said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. And when he told the parable of the, of the man who, the foreigner who did good to the, the dying man along the road who was culturally his enemy, he gave us this powerful picture of what it means of when God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's important to remember, too, that the very first churches that were established after Jesus ascended into heaven were given this command, remember the poor. And Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, commanded them and all churches, even churches today, to do good to all people. Now, I could go on, but I hope I've sufficiently made the point that Christians see that world, uh, that uh, world in bad shape in a particular way, that, that they take the question seriously, what can I do? to make a difference in the world, specifically in the lives of the people with which I come into contact. Now, as followers of Jesus, we know that although the outward circumstances of people may be bad, they may be terrible, that we know that there's a worse mess inside. It's in our hearts. Uh, we know that the human heart, all hearts, your heart and mine, are, are warped beyond repair because we've walked away, we've turned our back in rebellion against God. And this turning produces the mess that we see on the outside. Sometimes that mess that we see is caused by people's poor choices. Often it's caused because someone has sinned against them and left them to deal with the fallout. We can certainly say that people are in bad shape. Now, it's easy and understandable if you think about all of the conditions in which people find themselves internally or externally, it's easy to say, this is beyond me. I, I, I can't deal with this. But what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is just try to encourage you and show you a way that you can make a difference in the world that's not beyond you. And I'm speaking specifically, we're going to look at this one verse primarily today, uh, the beautiful image of blessing those around us that's found in Psalm 84, verse 6. Now, there's a whole lot more in this psalm than we're going to be able to get to. And as we go along, I'm hoping to be able to show how the psalm ties together. Uh, but first, let's, let's look at this image, this powerful image of cultural transformation. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You just sort of imagine that, especially if you're from Arizona or Utah, uh, at least the desert parts. The part of this verse that catches our attention first is that phrase, Valley of Baca. Now, scholars don't necessarily agree on what that word Baca means, but you, you get the picture from the context that if this is a place where springs appear and early rains arrive, that it's really a big deal. And it shows that this would be an arid place, a barren place, a dying place. It certainly is not a place for human thriving. It is indeed a place in bad shape. And therefore, it's a place of tears. Martin Luther translated this as a place of sorrows. So when we come to describe our world, we could call it the Valley of Baca too. 
And as we look at that world, we, we understand from this verse that the solution is not a literal making of springs, but it is a great metaphor uh, for the situation that people find themselves in. We can rightly say then, I know what would heal this dying place, water. I think you get the power of the image. If during the heat wave that we had this last summer, you know, if, if you saw your garden or a neighbor's garden just begin to suffer and, and dry up, you knew that water was what was needed. And so as you passed through your garden of Baca dragging a garden hose, you brought water to trees, plants, flowers, whatever. And if you didn't wait too long, you saw the, the plants begin to, to revive and began to see your garden life thrive. Now, maybe you want to know, so what could I do to bring life to the dying world around me? I hope that's the question that you're asking. I'm encouraging you to do that. And I want to give you some practical suggestions, but, but first I just want to emphasize two things from this verse. The two things are that first, in the mess, that there are real people who are there to help and to change, and that when they do that, that real change happens. This is in the verse. First, think about they go through the valley of Baca. They're there. And it's not merely that they think about the valley. It's not merely that they write a report about the valley. They're, they're actually there in the, in the mess, in the dryness, in the, in the sorrow. And when they're there, what happens is that they make, the verb is, is active, they are doing something, they make it a place of springs. Springs in the desert is where the oases are. That's where life is. And if you find a spring in the desert, uh, you celebrate and you go there. So what I think we're supposed to come away from from this verse is with the idea that this sad world is a better place because they were there. So the question, again, that I'm hoping you're asking is, who, who are these people? Uh, who are the people that create springs in the desert? Well, uh, guess what? I'm going to argue that the people, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that the people are you. But you might want to say, well, help me with that a little bit. Help me get a hold of that idea. So let me tell you. Let's see what the text says about these people who make springs in the desert. Let's start with verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. These are not people who are in themselves world changers. These are not people who have muscled up to tackle human suffering. They might be weak. They might themselves know tremendous suffering and loss. But they're people who have a strength outside of themselves. They're people who have been strengthened by Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. It begins, this may begin to make sense a little bit that these are nothing more than fellow human beings that are being talked about. But these folks, they have a strength, a power that comes from God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things, seen and unseen. And so, since God is the real weatherman, the one who makes the weather, it's not too hard to understand that those with the strength from God could bring refreshment to the sorry world that's around them. They make a difference. Others in the world, though, may do nothing but worry or fret or complain or blame. And that invites you to think about, so which kind of person are you in the world? 
But let's dig deeper, because if this was all we had in the psalm, we might think that these were people who had somehow figured a way to tap into the power of God, sort of like a a sorcerer or, or a medicine man. But when we fill out the picture, we realize that this is not the case at all, that here's the fundamental idea of who these people are. Throughout the psalm, we see that these are people who have a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God is what drives this change in the desert. Look, for instance, at at verse 8. It's a prayer. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. You know, it's interesting in this prayer, he speaks of the Lord God of hosts. You see God in his greatness and his majesty, but he also calls him the God of Jacob. And when he speaks of Jacob, he might be speaking of one of the forefathers of the Jewish nation, but he's also, Jacob is a, is a synonym, another word, simply for the people of Israel. He's the God of his people. And so the focus is he can, he can pray to him, he can talk to him. God is that near and that real because they're in relationship. And then look at verse 2. These are folks who love to sing praises to their God. You get the idea that, that God is a central, if not the central focus in their lives. And it's not a one-way relationship either. Look at verse 11. To these people who are in relationship with God, He bestows favor and honor. God cares for His people. He strengthens them, builds them up. In fact, the psalmist says, no good thing does He withhold. But what about verse 1? The writer talks about loving God's house. And this theme carries throughout the psalm. In verse 3, he pictures birds having found a a safe place in the house of God. And in verse 10, he declares, this is a lovely sentence, he declares simply that there is no better place in all the world than to be in God's house, even if it's only to plop yourself down on the doorstep. It's the best place in the world. So you might be thinking, in the light of these few verses we just looked at, that you know maybe this psalm is an advertisement for church. You know, this is a great place. You ought to come in here. And you do hear the note of praise for the house of God, temple, tabernacle, the tent of meeting, whatever. But, but think with me for a minute about this. If someone says, you know, I just love going to the Volzes, what do you think? Would you think if they said that, about us or about you, that they really like to come to our house? No, I hope that what you would think, you would understand that what they meant was they liked being with the Volzes. They liked being with you. And so what I want you to understand that these people are not, this psalm is not describing people who are devoted to great architecture. They're people who are devoted to the great God who indwells the architecture. And this is a really important point. God is real. He's as real as stones and birds and springs. But He's not seen. And so some people think of God as a sort of impersonal essence that you could tap into by the effort of your own spiritual exercises. But God chose to meet with His people among them in His tabernacle in the temple to help them realize First, He's real, and then that He's really with them. He's really in their midst. And so the way the psalmist sees it in this psalm is that to love the temple is to love the God who dwells there. So how does this work out for those of us who worship in a gymnasium instead of in a temple? 
Look at it this way. In the Old Testament, God's people came to the temple to meet with Him. They knew where to find Him. But now, God comes to meet with us. He knows where to find you. He's near to us wherever we are. And how do we know this? We know it because Jesus came into our world. He took on our flesh and He lived among us to rescue us, to die for us and to rise again. And in rescuing us, He broke down the barrier that separated us from God. Because of what Christ has done for us now, we can have that living and true relationship with Him. And not only is He near us, but He dwells in us. As Paul reminded the Corinthians, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So, quick review. The psalmist's love for the house of God, it's a powerful, tangible expression. His love for the house of God is a powerful expression of his love for God himself. And he's so serious about that love for God that he's willing to change his priorities. He's willing to make personal sacrifices. His love for God shows up in his love for the house of God. But look at this. God's love for the psalm writer and for all his people shows up in his strengthening them. Again, verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. God gives that strength, and because He's given it to His people, then verse 7, they go from strength to strength in the strength that God provides. And so now we're sort of back where we started, or we're looking at people who make springs in the desert, and we see that they're able to do this because they're in a love relationship with the living and true God. And so this begs the question, do you know that you can make a difference in the world around you? And not only that you can, but that it's God's intention that that's what you would do. As Paul told the Ephesians, be sure you get this, that we were saved by God in order that you could do the good works that God planned for you to do. That's pretty amazing. God saved you so that you could do good works. What this means is then that Christianity is not only a religion of truths, It's also a religion of actions. But often the church has failed to get a hold of that. How often has the church turned its face in on itself to engage in dispute and debate and in the process ignored the more weighty matters of mercy and justice and faithfulness that are lying on its doorstep? You know, I've been doing ministry for, what, over 50 years. And I think I've seen over that time that as believers, we're often stuck. We have a good theology, but we have a poor practice. We're stuck at the doing point. What can be done? Well, let me make one point clear, that some people are stuck because they don't have the strength of God which simply means that they're not in that living relationship with Him. They're not in a relationship with God that He offers to them through Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you would not call yourself a believer, but you have a burden for the broken and needy people in the world, think about this. Isn't this psalm inviting you to say that God would bless that burden that you have for the broken and downtrodden, that he would bless you as you turn to him, as you build a relationship with him in Christ, that he'll bless that and give you the strength that he gives to the followers of Christ. He'll do for you what you could not do for yourself. 
But what about those of us who are believers, who belong to Christ, who have the power of His Spirit, and yet often feel stuck? We don't seem to make an impact in the world around us. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I had a model train set up in my bedroom. And when I would turn the power up, the train would run around the track, run around the track. But sometimes I would turn the power up and nothing happened. And I finally figured out, I discovered that if I would just give the engine, give the engine a tap, just a, just a little tap with my finger, that the train would spring to life and it would start running around the track again. Maybe you're like my train. The power of God is in your life. That's God's promise. But you feel stuck and you're not sure how to live your life on a daily basis for Christ. And so what I'm hoping is that this sermon might be just one of those little little taps that God would give you, maybe an aha moment that would would get you going. Uh, So here comes the tap. How can you be a transforming influence in the world around you? I can answer that in one word. The word is prayer. Prayer. Are we not asking God to transform our world into His world when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done? Are we not calling on the God of power and love to change the human landscape around us as we pray? Now, here's a tap that Kathy and I experienced. We were camping our way through Oregon last month, and we were burdened as we drove through Seattle and saw homeless encampments along the freeway. And then we got to Portland, and it looked like they got twice as many homeless people as we do. And that's a real burden to see that. And then we got to campgrounds and we saw something we have never seen in 50 years of camping, that there were people who were supposedly camping in campgrounds, but they were actually living out of dilapidated motorhomes. And you looked at them and you wondered, how in the world can these things even go down the highway? So with the burden of those images in our mind, this thought kept reoccurring, passing through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Passing through the Valley of Baca, They make it a place of springs. And we wondered how could the transforming power of God, how could that actually come to the dying places that we saw? In most cases, there was little that we could actually do to help the people that we saw on our journey. There was little that we could do to bring the blessing of God to them. But we know that the God of blessing could bring blessing there. God could bring the blessing And we believe that because Jesus introduced the kingdom of God into this broken world, that blessing does flow. And the way that we could connect with others that we encountered on this journey was, first of all, through prayer. So we made it our purpose to pray for people that we had face-to-face contact with. We prayed for the park ranger who came to fix the faucet in our campsite. We prayed for the waitress who served us at Denny's. We prayed for the Vietnam vet who was camping next to us, who had struggled with alcoholism and who had lost his son to amphetamine addiction. We prayed for the tattooed guy who pumped our gas at Fred Meyer. Now, sometimes we could pray for these folks by name. Kevin the vet, Bill the widowed campground host, Brad the drunk young man who in the dark couldn't find his way back to his campsite. Uh, But mostly we did not and could not know the names of those for whom we pray. And mostly we didn't know what the needs were of the people that were around us and the people we were praying for. But we knew that our Heavenly Father knew their names. And we know 
More than that, we know that our Heavenly Father is generous. So because our God is the one who makes springs in the desert and who brings early rain to parched lands, how could we not pray that springs would break out in the lives of the people who touched us as we traveled through our own Valley of Baca? So I'm inviting you to consider a similar approach to the valley that you're in. Please know that this is an invite, it's not a command, and maybe it's just a picture that might inspire you to discover your own way to bring God's blessing to the world around you. So I'm hoping that this message is just a little tap for some of you who are stuck at the point of praying for those around you. But the real tap is not our experience. It starts with the model of the believers who in Psalm 84, out of their joy in having God near to them, are eager to bring blessing to the world around them. My point has not been to have you take up a burdensome prayer task, as if in your own strength that you would would do something, you'd muscle up and do this. No, I'm just asking you to see what's possible for those who are the ones who are strengthened by God. And if you're having trouble making the jump from Psalm 84 in the Old Testament to the world around you, there's an even more powerful tap that God wants to give you. It's the picture of your Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Where the process of praying for springs in our journey's desert starts is with people who delight in their Savior, who He is and what He's done and what He's doing. So look to your King, Jesus. He came in love into the world to redeem it, to bring living water to the needy, to bring life to those who were dried up. He came to bring life to you. Let that be the example that you focus on. And as you do that, I think that over time, He will bring springs of joy into your life. And the reason I I believe that is because there are people who are praying for you. Your pastors and your elders pray for you often by name. There are others in your family who pray for you, people you don't even know who pray for you. And I believe that we're encouraged to trust God that He answers prayer. So look to that. Look to Christ and let that vision of His love to you and to this world be the thing that encourages you to cry out to that world on its behalf. So I've been speaking of the little tap that many of us need to sort of connect our love of Christ to the needs of the world around us. As an example of that tap, I want to show you a short video that was a tap in my life. It was actually a pretty big tap because it actually opened me up to an opportunity to live my faith that somehow had never quite gotten through my thick skull. This clip has blessed me, and my prayer is that as you see it and think about it, that it will bless you too. I was raised in a a mainline church in the Midwest um, in which the Bible really wasn't believed in, um, even spoken very much about. And though I believed God existed, I really didn't have, I could see absolutely no relevance for Him in my life. And in fact, After I'd moved to the city, I was just crazy successful at work, doing well, happily remarried uh, to my current husband, Greg. And um, and I just, uh, I was very proud and haughty, and as I said, just saw no need for him whatsoever. And then things changed. I had a, was diagnosed with a heart murmur when I was in my early 30s, and that brought me in a roundabout way to a, uh, uh, my first Bible-believing church, and it was in the 
in Puerto Rico in a resort church, which led me to um, Calvary Baptist Church on West 57th Street, where it's the first time that I really heard the Word of God um, taught and preached. And about two years in, I finally bowed that proud heart of mine um, and became born again. And but I, because neither my husband or I knew ostensibly a Christian, um, I, I knew somebody would pray, but I couldn't imagine who it was. So I asked the Lord if He would show me. And about six months later, I'm homesick, and um, that's the day that our maid Maria was working for us in our house, in our apartment. And um, she mentioned to me that she had seen the books, the book on my nightstand had changed, which certainly had. A Bible was there now. And I knew that was the answer to my prayer. And I said, Maria, was it you? Was it you who had been praying for me and for Greg? And she said, oh, yes, Missy Clark. In her broken, sweet English, she was from um, South America, a Catholic believer. And she said, yes, in fact, I prayed for you and Mr. Clark every day. And interestingly enough, that's really informed my work. Um, because there's a gap between, there was a gap, a large socioeconomic gap between Maria and me. Um, and in fact, if she had spoken to me, I'm quite sure I would have been too proud to hear from her. And it's now, now my, the work God has me in is I work, I coach very senior executives, and there's also a large socioeconomic gap. So most of the time I'm not called to speak directly to them, but I am called to speak directly to God about them. And um, one amusing story, I think, to show just how God can work through prayer is that um, I had a very brilliant and very tough-minded senior executive I was working with on Wall Street. And um, I leave one of the uh, Redeemer services, and by the information table, he's standing there, and I just about collapsed. I, in fact, I ran away. I was just so utterly shocked to see him there. But it was really clear that God had answered my prayer that he would bring into this man's life someone from whom he could hear the gospel, and that someone was Tim Keller. Uh, let me leave you with a, a quote that I hold on to for encouragement, and I hope it will encourage you. It's by Oswald Chambers, and it speaks to what I've been talking about. Um, we may have spoken until we're worn out and gotten nowhere um, in sharing the gospel with one. But if we have been praying, we find a meeting them one day that there is a beginning of a softening and an inquiry and a desire to know something. It is that kind of intercession that does the most damage to Satan's kingdom. It is so slight and feeble in its initial stage that it almost seems stupid to think we can pray and all that will happen. But we need to remember to whom we pray a God who understands the unconscious depths of personality but which we know nothing, and he has told us to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people who have prayed for us, whose heart for us and heart for you, who you've heard their cry and it's led to our coming to Christ and bowing our proud hearts. We thank you most of all for the intercession of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the powerful drawing of us to you in spite of our sin, but covered by Christ. 
And so I thank you, Father, that you have told us to pray, encourage us to ask you to work not only in our own lives, but also in the lives around about us. And so, Father, I pray that you'll keep reminding us that this is not a burden, but this is a joy to ask our God to touch the lives of the people, especially the ones that we cannot touch directly, but believing that you will keep your word and that our generous God will touch in a variety of ways the folks around us according to their needs, according to their need of Christ. We confess, Father, we'd like to know the answer to our prayers, but give us then a heart to be satisfied, to know that we have done our part as we've lifted them up before the throne of grace, trusting that you will do your part to build your church, to populate your world with souls redeemed through the the love and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.